Tonight, we are talking fast money and fast cars. Ford flooring it, the stock hitting its highest level since July of 2001. This rally built Ford tough, or is it time to pump the brakes? Plus, cleared for takeoff, Delta soaring on strong results. The company CEO speaking exclusively to us. What he said about the future, but as investors betting on the not-so-friendly skies. And later on, rotten calls. Wall Street analysts laying out some of their top picks for the year. Some are working out, but there are definitely a few bad apples so far in the bunch. We'll find out if any might be worth a second look with your hard-earned dough. All right, everybody, welcome to Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan, in once again for Melissa Lee. Great to have you with us on a big show tonight, and your trader lineup is ready to take it on. Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Pete Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. We have got a lot more to get through and some really interesting single stock stories for you. But we have to begin here with the macro markets and your money because in many ways, it was a brutal day for many big name stocks. Now, it, it all started kind of okay. I mean, the NASDAQ was down a little bit right until about lunchtime in the East Coast. And then Fed Vice Chair nominee Lael Brainerd said this. We have projected uh, several uh, increases this year. Hear that? The S word. Several potential rate hikes this year and many big name tech stocks selling off immediately. The Nasdaq dropping more than 100 points in just a matter of minutes and closing the day down two and a half percent. Ouch. Now, semiconductors would have been up nearly three percent. They reversed course fast. It went deep into the red. Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, and others also reversing early gains in a big way. The question is, Guy Adami, is this kind of the potential nail in any coffin for hopes of a near-term tech turnaround in 2022, he said. No, I'm not pulling I'm not pulling the hammer out to put that final nail in the coffin just about yet. But, you know, I find it interesting. And Tim Seymour says this all the time, and I'll absolutely let him speak to this. But he says and he's been saying that more Fed means more volatility. And if you're looking for proof positive, you saw it today. Now, I don't think any of the comments out of Lael Brandard should have come as a surprise. With that said, she's probably the most dovish Fed member out there. And this is the yes. same Lael Brandner, by the way, that a year ago was talking about looking for the tools to boost inflation. And now magically she's concerned about it, as she should be, by the way. So it's interesting to see. I, I don't think the tech trade is over, but I think what you're seeing, and we've been talking about it now for the last few weeks, is this move from high valuation, high growth yeah. names into names that people can wrap their head around a little bit better on the valuation front. So the aforementioned Tim Seymour, maybe not the nail in the coffin, but as always, Guy hit the nail on the head because Lael Brainerd, the dove. I mean, maybe this is what it sounds like when doves cry, because if the markets reacted to Brainerd, what would the more hawkish Fed, Fed heads do? Well, yeah, and, and the tech sector that, that's you know, running into the end of the party like it was 1999 as well. And I, and I think if you had a, the, the galaxy of Fed stars speaking today, and it wasn't just Brainerd. I mean, it was, it was Chicago's Evans. I, you know, Fed, Fed Evans uh, may have been the most hawkish, uh, who was at least three bid, possibly four offered on rate hikes this year. Um, they all pointed out also that the labor market uh, will remain stubbornly uh, uh, you know, inflationary. And, and they also remind us that the Fed's mandate is not just 
maximum employment, but it is inflation. All this adds up to a Fed that even said today, and, and Ms. Brainerd said this, um, effectively the Fed's behind the curve. Um, that inflation is, is past where we're comfortable. Uh, and this is something that we heard loud and clear. So uh, the V in my live trade is volatility. And, and the VIX went up 15% mm. from the minute Ms. Brainerd started talking. And certainly uh, at around 12, 13, when we saw the big pullback, but you saw the semiconductor index minus 4.6% from the highs of the day to where we closed. Taiwan Semi, which started the day with so much excitement uh, about semis and, and why they are the cyclical growth engine of the world. Uh, they had massive blowout numbers. They said they're going to spend 44 to 46 billion dollars in capex underscoring uh, the demand out there and, and and at the start of the day semis were near all-time high so i'm not going to give you either side of that nail i'm going to tell you that uh, as the day started the market was very very bullish despite we've had this inflationary scare for for three to six weeks but um the fed was very clear yeah. today in a way they have not been in a long time and i want karen listen be the voice of calm for our audience here as well. And not like everybody else isn't, but we got to remember something. Fed rate hikes are associated with strong economies. Yes, inflation is a part of that, but a, a pretty boisterous underlying economy tends to be the reason why we see Fed rate hikes. And, and I'm going back to my mental history, there have been plenty of times where the Fed has been raising rates and many stocks, maybe not sky-high tech valuation names, but many stocks have done just fine, have they not? They have, that's true. And you can look at different sectors that do better. So for example, banks have done better in rate hikes. But I do think though, we have had the Fed is a tailwind for a long, long time. And this is a very, very significant shift. So it's not surprising to me that these high flyers, we talk about the IGV all the time, the super high flyers are coming in and they still, I think, have room to go because I, I don't look at this as a nail in the coffin or not. I look at it as a pendulum and the pendulum evaluation for the super high flyers went way too far and it's starting to come back. And the thing about a pendulum is it doesn't stop in the middle. It keeps going until maybe things are overdone to the downside. I don't think we're near that. I think we have a five year chart of the IGV and we can see it's had an enormous run. I mean, these are incredible companies with tremendous growth, but the valuations to me just got out of whack. And so if you look how, how messy and how ugly that was for today was for those kind of stocks, you can find plenty of stocks that did okay. The banks for one, some of retail, Capri, Tim's, uh, Tim's Macy's, names like Whirlpool, FedEx did okay, United Rental, Caterpillar, the autos, which we'll get to later. So there are a lot of things that can and will do better even if the Fed is hiking, I just don't think these real high flyers have had enough of a, a comeuppance yet. Pete Nigerian, uh, I know you've been a bull on Microsoft for a long, long time. Some other big name tech stocks as well. You just heard the intro to conversation. I mean, everybody was kind of a sell first, maybe let's think about it later type market today. What are you doing? Are you still holding? Are you still a believer in a Microsoft or other big tech stocks? Well, to reference back to the very top of the show, it's a bit of a controversy, right, Brian? I mean, when you look at really what's going on within the markets themselves right now, 
Um, they're going after the high multiple stocks. That's what the attack really is right now when we're looking at the markets. You look at the names today that we're leading right out of the gate, and you can throw in many of those semiconductors, even the ones that we might like a lot, like an NVIDIA and, and so forth in AMD. You look at where their PEs are, they are a bit stretched, right? They're great companies. We love their products. We think they do an outstanding job. But look at where they're trading. Look at where an NVIDIA is trading. And then all of a sudden you look at the next level, the ones with no multiple or three and four digit multiples. Those are the names they were coming after. I'm not concerned at all about my Microsoft. I, I, I'm sad that it's gone down as much as it has recently. But I'm not worried about Microsoft, not worried about Apple. I think you've got to focus on those, those names that really don't make any money for the most part or make very little money. And they've been able to fly over the last couple of years. I think those are the ones that are going to be under pressure. We talk about rotation all the time. I think what we're seeing is a rotation within tech and within the semis that if you've got those high multiples, you're under huge pressure. If you don't have those high multiples, you've got a little bit of pressure as well because people are shifting money around a little bit. They're coming out of some of those names and taking a little bit of profits from some of those big names and shifting it over to other parts of the market. But that's been all part of this very, very healthy rotation that I think is the reason why we're still not that far away from all-time highs in any of the yeah. major sectors. And I think, Karen, I'll go back to you. I think this is our, your, the show's, whatever, fundamental job, the rotation. People have, when they're selling, they've made a lot of money on many of these stocks. I mean, fortunes have been made. Now they're sitting on a pile of cash. They're going to want to get back into the stock market somewhere and at some time. And I think that's probably our core job to figure that out. If you're sitting on a wad of cash because you sold NVIDIA, you tripled your money, you're looking for a place to put it right now. Where are some good places to put those profits? Well, to Pete's point, I don't, all technology is not the same. I mean, I have FANG stocks, which I'm sad also. I do own some Microsoft. I own, you know, Alphabet is my biggest position. I have a big meta position and uh, some Apple and a little bit of Amazon. So I don't <laughs> love that those are trading down, but I think of those as really value stocks. And I think Kudos to whoever sold their NVIDIA at the top. I think there's a lot more people who saw that it traded at some much higher number and want to wait till it gets back to that number before they sell it. And that's a dangerous strategy. The question is, do you want to own it right here? And so for me, NVIDIA is great a company as it is at this valuation. I wouldn't want to own it and don't. Just a little too rich. All right. Thank you very much, Karen. Well, we got a lot more to do. And this is not all, by the way, that is hitting some of the big name tech stocks tonight, because we have got some breaking news out of Washington on tech. Let's get right now to Julia Borston with that news. Julia. Brian, the tech giants are facing subpoenas as part of the Congressional Select Committee's investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol last year. Now, the committee is demanding records from Alphabet, Meta, Reddit, and Twitter relating to the spread of misinformation, efforts to overturn the 2020 election, domestic violent extremism, and foreign influence in the 2020 election. Chairman Benny Thompson saying in a statement that two key questions are how the spread of misinformation and violent extremism contributed to the January 6th attack and what steps, if any, social media companies took to prevent their platforms from being breeding grounds for radicalizing people to violence. Now, we have reached out to those four companies for a comment. We got a no comment from Twitter. We have not gotten comments yet back from the other tech giants. Brian? 
All right, Julia Borston with that big breaking news. Stock's not moving a lot. We'll see what happens. Julia, thank you very much. All right, let's get now instant reaction from our fast money friend, Gene Munster. Of course, he runs Loop, a venture capital firm. Gene, we're going to have you on and still are, by the way, to talk about a lot of the stuff that was going on before this breaking news. But you just heard it. Subpoenas. Should America cares? Should investors care? Brian, I don't think so. I feel like I've heard this story before. There's a healthy dose of deja vu. And at the end of the day, I think most investors have become uh, numb to what Capitol Hill is doing against some of these big tech companies. This is just the, the latest rev. And when we think about the companies that are noted in particular, a couple things uh, stood out. One is uh, feel like I've heard this before and investors ultimately shrug these off. Second is notably absent from that list. I don't think Apple was on there. Maybe I, maybe I missed that, but it felt like it was more related They're to not. the social media, media platforms. And I think that's, uh, I think, a testimony to how Apple's navigated uh, successfully around what's been going on Capitol Hill. But when you focus on the social side, these companies, we think about Facebook, Meta, you think about uh, what Snapchat's doing. Ultimately, I think it's a lot less about what's going on with subpoenas in Capitol Hill and what it's all, what's, what's going to be more important when they report their December quarter is what engagement numbers are. And uh, just as a quick recap, what the state of engagement was with these companies, Facebook was, uh, they grew their daily active users by 6% in the September quarter. That compared to 7% growth in the, in the June quarter. They've been growing at that 6 to 10% range for the past four years. And when you look at Snapchat, even though they had some negative commentary regarding IDFA and some of the Apple changes, they grew their monthly yeah. active, their daily active user by 25%. You put it together, I think the DAU numbers uh, ultimately are what investors are going to care about with these companies over the next few weeks and less about what's going on Capitol Hill. All right, let's get back down to the reason you are here, and that is some of the troubles in tech land. And I want to make sure that our viewers know that we have a sense of context. Okay, Gene, because I get it, stocks are down a couple of percent. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when a 10% down move was not that big of a deal. Still, we're dealing with a generation of new traders. They really haven't had to deal with this. Of course, outside of the pandemic led drop off in 2020. That was kind of its own exogenous event. Let's not forget from September to December of 2019, the NASDAQ fell 22% and it ultimately was a buy. What's your take on the macro move that we are starting to see in these markets? Buying opportunity or not yet? Not yet. I uh, I think I would generally echo some of the same uh, commentary from the traders today. I think that there's still some downside. And of course, especially with these higher multiple companies and the way I would assess it is kind of making a, a very a strong line between the near term, the next three months and the long term beyond three months. And in the near term, what I see going on is a game of uh, Fed roulette, and this creates investor anxiety. You're right. I remember those days, those 10% down, but down 2.5%, that is a two-standard deviation move. Those are, uh, they are less, they don't happen very often. And of course, fear uh, creates more fear. And then the question for me, what it comes down to, to answer your question, when, at what point do we get through this? At what point do people start, can they be more aggressive? I think that there just needs to be a simple uh, resetting of expectations from the Fed. As I mentioned, this Fed roulette, it happens, there's a direct correlation between somebody from the Fed talks and the market goes down. And what I'm hearing there is investors are saying, I don't know what the Fed is going to do. And we know inflation is bad. We've established that. And at some level, the Fed needs to take control here. They need to uh, uh, give investors 
uh, a clear direction of, of what they're doing. And I know they're not work, they're not operating in a perfect environment, but if they would just say, we're going to raise it uh, four times and guess what? We're going to uh, we're going to make that first raise 50 basis points. Uh, the market would be down 5% on that, but then I think it would be done. At least we would know. And in this point, the worst thing that the Fed can do at the end of the month is to say Omicron and uh, Omicron is bad. Don't get me wrong. But if they just kind of uh, play this off, like we can't make any decisions now, that would be a disaster, I think, to the market. And ultimately, uh, I think the market needs its medicine. And that's what I'm hoping will finally get this cloud to clear. So, Gene, what, what I, what I hear you saying is this is a, a raid environment that, that, that ultimately mega cap tech can tolerate. I, I believe that. Uh, again, the kind of rate move I think we can get out of the Fed in the near term or should expect. So what do you do as an analyst? We can judge what this means in terms of asset flows and passive markets. And, and we do that every day because of the weighting of these stocks. But ha- how about a 20 to 50 basis point move to the valuations of these stocks? Tell the audience what that means to you as an analyst. So every 1% change in the Fed fund rates typically impacts the valuation by 10 to 20% for these companies. And so, you know, there's a projected mm. percent and a half, 2% move. It is a, a, a measurable impact. And so that is part of the reason why I said we're not through this, is we still need to digest those changes. If we can get clarity about where the rates are going, then the market can identify that and can move on. But that's, uh, Tim, to answer your question, is that's, that's the impact. I would say that if there was somebody who was more optimistic, at least over the next few weeks than I would, they would uh, argue that uh, that's true, that that dynamic is true about the 1% impact. But I, uh, they would argue that, uh, you know, that you're going to see some this inflationary pressures are going to create upside to earnings that will offset that 10 to 20 percent uh, uh, headwind. And so you do have an environment. We think about how strong Facebook and Google's business was last year. A lot of that was ad pricing that went up because of inflation. They're going to benefit from these. And so unfortunately, from a, a, a fundamental perspective, there's a lot of, uh, yeah. uh, of uh, conflicting data. Gene, repeat that. I think it's really important what you just said. Every 1% move, which would be four rate hikes, assuming they're a quarter point each, takes 10% off evaluation? 10 to 20. Now, uh, uh, we've seen some of this. Uh, You know, NASDAQ's 6% off, but if you assume... We go to a uh, 1.5% Fed funds rate. That would assume there's another 5 to 10% downside to the NASDAQ. Gene Munster, Loop, really important stuff there. Gene, we do appreciate that. So, thank Guy Adami, I mean, I'm not that good at math, but oh, thank you. Oh, Guy, I'm not that great at math, but you think <laughs> about it. If Gene's right in the history, let's say you got a stock 30 times earnings. Okay, we raise Fed funds by a percent, or the market thinks you will because they're going to act before the Fed actually does it. So that's 10 to 20%, 3 to 6 so you take the stock down to, say, a, I don't know, a 20, 26 times earnings instead of 30 times earnings. I wonder if it's that rational. I think it is that rational. Now, it won't feel rational. And we speak about this all the time. You know, Pete talks about this, too. I mean, it never, on the way down, you know, everybody's hoping for lower prices to buy things cheaper. And they'll always say it. I wish I could buy X at this price. But then when it happens, it's never for the reasons that you thought that would get you there, if that makes sense. And you become petrified. But if you have a plan in place, this becomes very rational. And to your point, it is just a math problem. I think everything Gene just laid out, we all should want because it's going to bring things back to a normalcy level where you can start to you know, gauge what is right and what's wrong in terms of stocks. Quickly, you know, in terms of Microsoft, you go back and look at the move. And Pete talked about this, as did Karen. Yeah, that move from 349 or so to this level 
has been drastic. But if you look at where we are, we're at huge support levels. We're at a prior all-time high from literally this fall. So there are stocks that have given back enough where they might make yeah. sense right here. Be interesting to watch NASDAQ 100's overall valuation. See if it backs up, you know, 10 to 20 percent or whatever points that is. Guy, thank you very much. All right, we have got more on big tech's growing troubles coming up, of course. But before that, we're going to hit the not-so-friendly skies lately. But even with all the travel troubles, shares of Delta, they're up. What the company's CEO told CNBC about the spring that an investor is booking a ticket to ride on that trade and later on, the Blue Oval showing its investors a lot of green lately. The stock touching its highest level since the first Fast and Furious movie was topping the box office. They're riding horses and buggies back then. Buckle up. We're going to take you for a spin on what that trade means when fast money rolls on. People are ready to travel. They're ready to book their spring plans. Uh, they know Omicron is not going to be a threat to them at that point, and they want to get out and they want to reunite with friends, family, the world, get on with their with their life. Uh, we, what we're seeing is, you know, for the spring season, it's going to be a very, very busy season in, in the summer as well. And uh, we just need to navigate this next four or five weeks to get there. That was Delta CEO Ed Bastian on CNBC this morning, sounding very optimistic on demand heading into the warmer months. The airline beating on both the top and bottom lines against estimates at its fourth quarter and projecting a profit for the full year. Stock getting a pop on earnings and adding to a turnaround over the past month as well. Airline stocks overall over the holiday stretch higher. Even as worker shortages have caused mass flight cancellations and periodic lunatics on planes have just ruined the entire experience. Despite that, Tim, you are long Delta Airlines. What's your take? Ed Bastian breeds confidence. Delta brings confidence. I mean, look, there are a couple things going on here. First of all, Delta is focused on balance sheet fostering and, and the fact that they pay down $6 billion in debt. Uh, they hope to be down to $15 billion in debt by 24. Um, these are very good signs and why it's you know, one of the highest quality names. Did not have to dilute the balance sheet or the equity shareholders, I should say, in the worst of this. And, and I think if you look at their, their uh, January numbers, obviously they're down. They've had a lot of flight cancellations. But if you look at the December numbers, they were at around 76, 77 percent of, of pre-COVID 2019 capacity. And they're going to be there by March. And I think the March month for the first quarter is obviously very important. But ultimately, uh, again, people look, look at what they did over the holidays with Omicron peaking. They want to be in airports. They want to be in airplanes. And the best carriers are the ones that have re-instilled confidence. If you look at the chart of Delta, I think that gives you confidence as well. You're, you're up against the top end of that downtrend that's all the way back from March of last year. And, and I'm buying that. I think airlines are back in gear. Uh, outside of fuel costs, this is an exciting time. Yeah, Pete Nigerian, it certainly is. And I understand there's a dichotomy. A lot of our viewers are thinking, what in the world? We got the record high cases, hospitalizations rising, all this right. stuff, and the airlines are rising. It's because the markets look forward, right? We're talking about the spring mm -hmm. and the summer and hopefully the end to this damn pandemic. Yeah, and I think Ed Bastian did a great job of being extremely positive, as Tim points out. And he's done a great job. I think that Delta Airlines and many of the big carriers have done an unbelievable job. Now, the problem still remains twofold. International, which they're still going to be struggling with, and he even said that himself. He said, 
look, this is going to be a very long journey. It's not going to be something that's going to be solved in the next six months. That's something that goes out even further. And the, secondly, the price of oil. When you, when I mean, that will at some point in time be that's a, a factor uh, that everybody starts talking. Yeah, and everybody will be talking about that again. And we're getting closer and closer to that. As a matter of fact, earlier, just before we came on the air, I saw that there was a, a gentleman on there talking about pr the price of oil getting up to triple digits. I've been saying the same thing. I think we do see oil, and you, Brian, you're a big oil guy. You you're, know the ins and outs of this as good as anybody out there. But $100 oil to me is not that far-fetched. As a matter of fact, I think we get there, and we maybe even extend a little bit beyond that. So that will be one more headwind, I think, for the airlines themselves. Yeah. Yeah, unless they can't raise prices. And you're right, once all the drilled but uncompleted wells are done, there's no more money to put in new wells. Production could drop off. By the way, Pete and Jaren, I just got to say, because our viewers may be wondering, in the commercial break, go get your cat and get back into the darkness, Dr. Evil, because we need to do something about your lighting. All right, that's <laughs> We are just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> Don't tell your son, Thanks. Scott. You got a whole bag of... Shh. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Buckle up. Ford putting the pedal to the metal. The stock hitting its highest level in more than 20 years. Is it time to tap the brakes? Plus, rotten picks. Nine trading days into the year. And there have been some really bad calls. Find out if any of our traders are betting on a turnaround. Fast Money is back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money tonight. We've got a bit of a buzzkill on Tesla. The stock down almost 7% today, erasing its gains, now negative on the year. And there are some new concerns that Tesla's Cybertruck could be delayed. There are reports the company removed the reference to the year 2022. Need I remind you, that's this year. From its website around production timing for the truck. Something to keep an eye on. Will that truck be delayed? Tesla hitting the skids, but... Check out the moves in Ford and GM. Ford stock hitting its highest level since July of 2021, topping $100 billion in market value for the first time ever. Guy, you have flagged this move. Good call there. What is the trade? And by the way, do you think now is the time for Ford to sell its stake in Rivian? Something Jim Cramer has talked about. Well, first of all, it's not, you know, I'd like to think it was just me, but it's not. I mean, Pete's been on it, Karen and Tim, Tim without question for quite some time. And what we've tried to point out is the market's going to finally reward both Ford and GM in terms of valuation. And you're seeing it play out over the last couple months. I do still think there's room to the upside in Ford. I mean, you put a 14 multiple-ish on a little more than $2 they're going to earn. You get a stock that's going to approach $30, I think. And I'll stand by that. In terms of selling their stake in Rivian, I mean, if Jim says they should do it, then I'm not going to argue with Jim. My, my instincts is they should probably hold on a little bit longer. Karen, your thoughts? Well, I think if, if what you're talking about, Tesla, is true, that's clearly very good news for Ford, right? I think the F-150 is, is available for deliveries this spring, if I'm not mistaken. Not quite as good news for GM. I don't think the Chevy Silverado will be until next spring of 23. So to the extent if that Tesla truck is, uh, they are going to produce it later, um, then that's much more helpful for Ford. I've been in GM, which, as Guy points out, it's really a value play. They obviously don't get anywhere remotely close to anything in the same stratosphere as Tesla in terms of their business. But they've got to show that their EV business really works, that they haven't 
yet, right? Yeah. They have the Hummer and they have the Bolt and the, not particularly exciting. So they have to they have to step up and we'll see how the Lyric does. So I get why they don't get anything close to that, but the multiple they do get seems cheap yeah. to me. So even though it's run a lot, I'm still long GM. Yeah, the Volt was the Pontiac Aztec of electric cars. Tim, but I do wonder, I know we love to talk about EVs, right? Because they're, they're such fast growers. I get it. But I wonder if we're not, if we're just discounting and forgetting the core business of GM and Ford. The fact that most Americans are going to buy a Chevy Tahoe, which, by the way, now costs like $80,000 fully loaded, and the profit margins have got to be high. EVs are sexy, but even if they're 10% of the market, they're still 10% of the market. Well, yeah. By the way, you joke about the Gremlin, but I know you're driving an AMC Pacer in high school. And by the way, that probably made you cool. So <laughs> a Hornet. It, it's all good. Actually, a I, Hornet. I think we rolled it. <laughs> we okay. rolled a Hornet. All right. I'm not kidding. So, so I, I believe you. I believe you. So, so look, you have a case here where the analysts are actually starting to question what the value is of the internal combustion engine business. And if you look at a lot of the analysts, in fact, they're giving uh, the legacy business almost zero terminal value uh, on DCFs. So actually, it really is turning into only EV call, which should make Ford and GM that much more valuable on multiple. Because guess what? Tesla is a car company, right? It's a car company, and that's how we're valuing it. I know we tried to do 15 other things, and great for the people that were long, but I, I, it's a case where then that's why you need to value GM and Ford more like an EV play. Ford's going to have 600,000 EVs on the road in 24. Um, I think that's a great story, by the way. For Tesla, folks, you know, I would not be that upset about the, 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 the pickup being pushed back. I mean, their production numbers are through the roof. I mean, that, they're concentrating on getting cars off the yeah. assembly line, and it's Working. This is a story about Ford and GM being undervalued on multiple, even if you do nothing with their legacy business. So here you go, Pete and Jerry, and I'm on my little handy dandy laptop here, and I go, I'm looking at. <laughs> I'm going to show our viewers. I'm looking at prices of Ford F-150s, not electric F-150s, not no. Lightnings, not Raptors. They're sixty-five to seventy-five thousand dollars. I mean, I know yes. we love to talk about EVs. It's great. They're growing. They're sexy. They're fun. They're fast. They're cool. But people are paying $75,000 for a truck that cost $55,000 a few years ago. Yeah. You, you want to talk about inflation. How about that? I mean, when you look at some of those numbers, Brian, it's absolutely incredible. Now, the Ford business is awesome. Tim's been all over this one. It's been great. He was on there long before me. I can tell you back in September, we started seeing call buying in here, and it just continued to accelerate. We hit five or six times per month all the way up until most recently, and we continue to see option activity in Ford today. So people are not done yet, Tim. They're still coming after it, and they're still looking for this yeah. stock to go even a little bit higher, maybe a couple of dollars hours. So I think that's really interesting because of that. It's all really predicated on this, this whole EV world, though. It really is. I mean, that's the stock move that we are seeing. And the pricing of Ford, yes, I know. they're not giving the old engine enough. They're not giving it enough credit. But the, the dollars, like you're pointing out, that shows you that shows you the margin potential that they've got. But they are having to deal with all the labor shortage. They are having to deal with everything else that we hear about each and every day. So that is an issue, and they are actually able to make up for that with and some I, of the prices they're getting right now. I, I, and I, I agree. I'm, 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 the valuations are with the EVs. I'm just saying let's not forget they're making a, a, a truckload of money, yes. by the way, just on their core products. You know, Tim, Tim Seymour with his yeah. Zeppelin poster, Ramble On, should be Rambler On <laughs> for probably what Pete was driving around in high school. All right, coming up, a social smackdown. 
The social media stock's getting whacked today. Look at the move in Snap alone. It got snapped. It got popped. We're going to break down the action ahead later on. The building boom in the metaverse. It's a fake world with very real money, but how exactly does it work? You may be afraid to ask, right? But don't be. We're not, and we're going to ask just that coming up. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Snap falling more than 10% today alone. Analysts at Cowan downgraded the stock and cut their price target by 40% to 45 bucks a share. Still, by the way, above where the stock is now. Stock has, though, lost more than half its value since the highs of September, down 20% in a month. Karen, you read the note. Your take on that and the move. We remember a couple quarters back and Snap had that incredibly great quarter. And then last quarter was a big miss. And they talked about the Apple new privacy and how that affected them. And the, the analyst points to further problems with that same issue. They haven't figured it out yet. And so for me, the social media names, I would much rather, much rather be in Meta and Alphabet. And I think that they're going to be able to navigate much better. I think the valuation is much better on both of those. Google may be a little less so because I think in the very, very near term, they'll get hit with travel a little bit on Omicron. But other than that, a tremendous business. I'd rather own either of those. And I do own both of those in big size instead of Snap. So even though it's down a lot, I'm still not enticed to switch out of those other ones for Snap. All right. Karen's not convinced, Guy. Are you? Well, I look at Pinterest and, you know, Karen talks about quarters where they're showing no quarter to names like Pinterest, which has clearly been, Brian, trampled (laughs) underfoot. But you go back about a week and a half or so ago and Piper Jaffrey actually upgraded Pinterest to overweight with a $53 price target. And if you remember, you know, whether it's true or not, Pinterest was sort of under the um, spell for a period of time of PayPal since denied. But where there's smoke, there's fire. And i got to tell you, the risk-reward sets up well here because as I'm looking at it, this sort of 32 level is a prior all-time high all the way back to the summer of 2019. So I take a look at Pinterest here. All right, good stuff there, Guy Adami. Do certainly appreciate that. I thank you. Coming up, the rising real price of virtual real estate. How do you buy land in this metaverse you keep hearing about? Well, we're going to take you in through the outdoor on just that. Stick around. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. A lot of investors, many of you out there maybe, are spending millions of real dollars on real estate in the virtual world, the metaverse. Prices in some areas up more than 400%. So why exactly are investors rushing in and buying up all this virtual land? Let's bring in Janine Yorio. She is Republic Realm CEO uh, their firm just putting out the 2021 Metaverse Real Estate Report, which I read with much interest, Janine, because I'm one of these ding-dongs that's trying to for- understand exactly how it works. Here's my question, though. I understand the value of what's being bought in the sandbox and Decentraland and whatever, but what's to stop thousands of other Metaverses from being created and diluting the value of all this property? Well, first of all, I want to preface this by saying I love ding-dongs, so thank you for spending time reading our report. If if you think about it that way, you will talk yourself out of it, but I think you have to think about it this way. It's enorm- an enormous opportunity, and the metaverses that are launching early are most likely to find enormous user bases. So one important statistic to understand is there's only 
about 25,000 people that even own metaverse real estate today. So while there may be many more metaverses that crop up in the future, some of these early ones are going to have an enormous head start as we kick off the metaverse ecosystem. We're tracking over 300 metaverses, but only a handful have actually launched and only about 24 or so even have land that can be purchased. So today, all the people that are looking to invest in metaverse real estate don't really have that many choices. And that's why we think it's such an interesting time to invest in this category. And, and, and again, please, and I am that ding dong, so please correct me if I'm wrong. It's kind of like Bitcoin in a sense that in some of these metaverses, the sandbox, for example, I understand there are fixed numbers of parcels that will ever be created, correct? 464,000 or something or 646,000, whatever the number was, I may have flipped it around. But that's the value of that scarcity is what ultimately I think gives it that value. It's very much a Bitcoin-like argument. It's kind of like Bitcoin. It's also kind of like buying a billboard in a video game. So think of the video game you know best. And if that video game were to sell a specific billboard, or if you play FIFA World Cup and you could buy the stadium signage and advertise Coca-Cola, you can start to understand why you'd want to buy specific pixels inside a specific metaverse experience. It's also kind of like venture capital investing, where we're investing so early that you actually have to assess the caliber of the team that's building this and decide whether they've done it before and you think they're actually going to be able to execute on, an, on a vision that's going to attract thousands, if not millions of users and keep them coming back time after time. So it's really this very unique skill set that it's a, a mix of asset investing, early stage tech investing, and understanding the competitive landscape and metaverse, which is really just taking shape today. Janine, a lot of people think uh, the metaverse is over the hills and quite far away. But there are some names that make sense. And I'm not looking to play stock market here, but Roblox makes sense. Uh, Mark Mahaney says Coinbase will be the bank of the metaverse. Do these things sort of make sense to you? Uh, definitely. I think Coinbase will be uh, certainly a player as they launch their NFT platform. OpenSea has really turned into the killer app for NFTs and metaverse real estate. It's all NFTs. So the more infrastructure you can gain exposure to in the metaverse sector, um, the better. Obviously, OpenSea is still a private company, but they closed a big funding round this week. And I'm sure there are some secondaries floating around that opportunistic investors can pick off if they're really shrewd. Janine Yorio, CEO of uh, Republic Realm. By the way, your report was incredibly helpful and knowledgeable, a good primer as well. So, Janine, I hope people can read this. And check it out. A lot of people have a lot of questions. Thank you very much. All right, Tim, bottom line this for us. Well, look, as Janine said, in, in good times and bad times, the, the metaverse is there's a place that you're still very early on this trade. And whether it's a real estate play or whether it's a branding play, and we've talked about Nike's role, we've also talked about uh, the chip companies, NVIDIA, AMD specifically. There's a lot of different ways to play it. Um, I think you have to understand that you know, there's there's going to be an element of this trade that also only works when you have a massive liquidity rush like we do right now, which isn't to say yeah. that there's not a long term future here. But I, I think part of the pain we're seeing in broader high risk risk asset classes is something that that, you know, I think you have to be very careful right now when you're jumping into the metaverse. Yep. You guys did a great job. And if, if our viewers didn't understand it, it's nobody's fault but mine. All right. The crypto craze comes into full focus tonight. Join Crypto Night in America for a look at what is next for digital assets. That is coming up at the top of the hour right here on CNBC.
And coming up, trouble with liftoff. One options trader betting it's going to be a rocky run for shares of Rocket Labs. We'll dive into the pit to get more details on that as well. More to do. Stick around. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Rocket Company. It's kind of a failure to launch here in today's session. The stock has been a loser for a while now, down just under 30% in the last year, and options traders are doubling down on their bearish bets. Mike Coe joining us how to break down the options action. Mike. Yeah, so Brian, RKT, this thing saw more than 7.6 times its average daily put volume. That was the result of a single very large trade. It was the March 1410 put spread that traded 25,000 times. The buyer paid a little over a dollar contract for that 25,000 spreads, repre representing two and a half million shares. And that $10 short strike representing the targeted downside over the course of the next couple months. So apparently at least one institutional trader sees further weakness ahead. All right, Mike, thank you very much. And as always, folks, for more options action, you can catch the full show. That is tomorrow night, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. All right, up next, you're set up at a bank earnings. We're back in two. All right, welcome back. And one programming note, tomorrow morning, 5.10 a.m., do not miss my interview with the IEA's Executive Director, Dr. Fatih Birol. We're going to talk about Russia, Europe's natural gas problem, and whether Vladimir Putin is purposely withholding gas from Europe to pressure them over Ukraine. 5, 10 a.m., set your alarms or set your DVRs and watch that interview. All right, also on tap for tomorrow, kickoff to earnings season. Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, all set to release their numbers. Guy, what are you watching? Well, the song remains the same for some of these names, specifically J.P. Morgan. Slow and steady wins the race. But I got to tell you, Brian, I got a whole lot of love for Morgan Stanley, which reports on the 19th. So I'll obviously be watching those banks, but I think Morgan Stanley sets up the best. I think Pete might agree with me on this one. They've done everything right. We've been bumping against these all-time highs. I think it goes ratcheting through. It is time now for our final trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen. Yeah, so Citibank reports tomorrow. I like it a lot. I actually hope it trades down because I would like to buy more. The only problem with it, it's run up a lot into earnings, but I, I, it's the Wells Fargo of this year. Well, and, and by the way, Karen, that is the best performing bank stock this year. Can you, we have a little time here. Give us one good reason. Why do you like Wells Fargo? We got like two, two minutes, apparently. <laughs> so why do I like Citibank, if that's a question? The price to book, I love what Jane Wells. Fraser's doing. It's going to be messy. And uh, in terms of valuation, I, there's nothing even close. So same as Wells last year. They'll get out of the regulatory issues at some point. They'll be able to be back in the markets giving cash back to shareholders, dividends and buybacks. It's my favorite one. Yep. Tim, we've never had more time for final trades. It's like a stairway to heaven. What, what are you watching? <laughs> Well, it would give me a chance maybe to, to introduce two, two Led Zeppelin songs. But, I mean, look, if you've owned Twitter, um, you've been trampled underfoot, and clearly the levy has broken. And, and I tell you what, this is a company that back in their fabled investor day of, of 2021 early, uh, they pointed out yep. doubling revenues in, 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 in the next year and a half. I think Twitter is a story. I don't care about this congressional hearing. I think it's about monetization, and this stock's gone way too far okay. too fast. Pete Nigerian. Pete? I mentioned Morgan Stanley. I do love that name, but I think Wells Fargo. By the way, J.P. Morgan, they've beat the estimates the last four or five quarters. They've still gone down, so you might get your shot on some of that pullback, okay. Karen, when the time comes. But Wells Fargo's going higher. And, and Guy Adami. Just to end it with another Zeppelin song, there clearly was a communication <laughs> breakdown between you and the control room there, Brian. <laughs> 
But that's okay. We got you to the finish line. I think Pinterest reached a really interesting level here, sir. <laughs> I'll see you, five, by the way, 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Thanks, everybody, for watching Fast Money. Good night.